We respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we record today, and pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm your host, Pete Whelan. And I'm Jack O'Shea's. Welcome to episode five of the Undercover Podcast. In this episode, we'll be jumping into Melbourne's hottest stories, scoping out the city's revolving bar scene with reporter Pete Whelan, looking at the sale of iconic live music venue The Tote, while Caroline Colleen chats to an ex-bachelorette contestant, opening up the city's first women-only bar. And Jack O'Shea's will keep the party going with a deep dive into Melbourne's burgeoning rave revival. But for our first story, residents from the town of Buller claim their town has been forgotten by the Victorian government. This comes after protests over toxic soil from the Westgate Tunnel project is being sent to Buller's scenic landscapes. Ben Estelle investigates. Ben, how's it going? It's going well, thank you, Pete. So tell me, what circumstances led you to the town of Buller? I spoke to locals, residents, and community members in Bulla about their concerns for the town's future and specifically the Westgate Tunnel Project, which has started to very seriously affect the town's uh, quality of life. In what way? So the Westgate Tunnel Project um, has about 3 million tons of soil uh, coming out of the uh, land that they've decided to hollow out. And that soil needs to be placed somewhere. Now, the Labor government has decided to put that soil into three dumping sites, uh, one in Ravenhall, one in Backers Marsh, and one in Buller. These convoys come through almost every day. And the very real effect of this soil being dumped is that it has created literal mountains of soil and dirt uh, just peering over the town that are completely visible and very ugly to the residents. And that's not even touching on the environmental effects that the soil has. Were any environmental precautions taken when um, choosing a site for the dumping? An ombudsman's report was released um, that detailed basically that the EPA, whilst doing nothing illegal, uh, did not take the proper precautions uh, in alerting residents, alerting the council, and uh, in talking to people who have investments in Bulla. The soil is not just affecting humans. Um, according to a petition, a petition created by Trevor Dance, um, who was a local in Bola, um, the high-quality eco-hub HIP uh, is located right next to Emu Creek, uh, which feeds into the Maribyrnong River system, which is home to the growling grass frog, which is an endangered species. When were the council alerted to the true extent of the dumpings? So the council were only really uh, told that the dumpings were going to be, uh, I think the original number was 1.5 million tons. And so that number has been raised. Um, However, they have actually received backlash from the community, at least from people who I have spoken to. Alan McKenzie specifically said that one councillor had a negative view of Buller 
and that the council itself was more concerned with keeping these grants and keeping the money that they earned from the government uh, than addressing residents' concerns uh, about the dumping. I would say that it is a failure of communication between the government and residents. And have residents been outspoken in response to the program? Residents have been extremely outspoken. Um, about two years ago now, I covered a protest that was organized by Heather Dodd, who's actually the brother of Alan McKenzie, um, which was called the Stop Toxic Soil in Bullet and Sunbury uh, protest that was organized in the uh, Village Green in Sunbury. I spoke to residents who had been living there for going on 60 years, and the general consensus is that they feel like Bullet is being forgotten by the government and by the country at large. If there's been this much noise about it, why hasn't anyone heard of it? How did this get forgotten? I am wondering the same thing. I believe that this is a case of Melbourne's uh, outer suburbs and near regional suburbs, especially. They don't get talked about as much, mainly because of their aging population, mainly because of their uh, lack of, I'd say, cultural funding, um, and just due to shrinking populations. And the soil just... It, it really does overshadow the town. It's so strange to see. There must be mountains of it. There are, I'm not even kidding when I say literal mountains of soil. From toxic soil to toxic beats, Melbourne's far from forgotten rave scene is making a roaring comeback. Long abandoned warehouses of Melbourne suburbs are being brought back to life by the fast paced, electrified beats of the 90s. Jack O'Shea airs with more. The 1990s are making a roaring comeback. With Y2K fashion trends littering the streets of Melbourne, the futuristic yet retro vibes are reverting back to the admittedly cooler elements of the 90s. Not only can Melbournians see the 90s making its inevitable return, but they can hear it too. The thumping, fast-paced, electrified beats of 90s rave culture can be heard from Melbourne's backyard, and they're getting louder and louder. With illegal secret raves being held at an almost routine rate in Melbourne's CBD and surrounding suburbs, the 90s is maintaining its firm grip on everyone's collective consciousness. Perhaps the coolest thing to come out of the 90s in Melbourne was its bustling rave culture. A youth-oriented subculture blending music, art and social ideas like peace, love, unity, respect, tolerance and happiness into a loving and carefree dance party fueled by fast-paced electronic beats and psychedelic drugs. A wave of young creatives were made excited and ecstatic by the forthcoming turn of the century. And Melbourne's growing fashion, art and music scene fueled what would become a city of fast and heavy partying. The 90s rave movement was global. The world's association with electronic music began in the 1980s, where a wave of psychedelic and other electronic dance music emerged from Acid House music parties in the Chicago area in the US. Acid House music producers and artists alike began experiencing success in overseas countries. And so the electronic dance music made its way into the UK's clubs, warehouses and popular party spots. Earlier rave and acid house parties saw around 4,000 partygoers. But as the 90s hit, and with it genres like acid, 
breakbeat, hardcore Gabba, post-industrial and electronica were born, raves began attracting more than 25,000 patrons per large event. By the time they made their way into Australia, rave parties were happening everywhere. Suburbs like Footscray, Richmond and Hawthorne saw some of their old, run-down and abandoned warehouses turn into popular epicentres for carefree dancing and tripping, centred around the fast-paced, repetitive, electronic music that encapsulated rave culture so well. And for those who were there, like DJ Dominic Hogan, they remain reminiscent of such a time. Fantastic and really good, really good thing to be a part of and see the evolution of that and, and see it go from, like, just a mate living in a warehouse doing a dodgy party every now and then to become a fully sort of, you know, um, no one about business kind of thing and um, other people took over from other people and got more legit about it and it was good to watch it in the 90s become legit. Melbourne's ever-growing rave culture was fueled by the ever-evolving music technology that came with the 90s, as well as young people's wish to experiment with new and exciting designer drugs. But like most good things, it slowly died out. Legislations and special task forces built around putting a stop to Melbourne's rave culture were made, and soon enough the electrifying and illegal rave parties were shut down and moved out. In recent years, Melbourne has seen somewhat of a resurgence in its cherished rave culture, with more and more public and illegal raves being held by numerous event organisers in a number of different spots. Haven't heard of them? Well, the way people are advertising their public dance parties have changed. Melbourne's raves of today are typically advertised through social media pages, usually a different one made specifically for each event. However, hearing about these dance parties by word of mouth still remains popular. Connor, a rave guy I met at one of these public dance parties, says he found out about the rave through the brother of a work friend. So a friend that I work with, his brother, he organised it and he does all these sort of like secret raves. He organises it, he finds a spot and basically, yeah, he's in charge of like all the logistics of it and then sends out invites to people that he believes are sort of worthy of it. And with the change in the channel of communication for planning these secret and underground raves, popular 90s DJ Dominic Hogan believes a new style of dance parties are a little counterproductive. I think it's good that it's happened. Um, I guess for my own personal reason, I just like being involved in those smaller sorts of things. Yeah, I really don't like the... Um, the massive level of rave party on that rock and roll stadium level. It's the whole sort of beginning of Earthcore was to get away from that rock and roll kind of mentality. And it's kind of gotten to that kind of level, the really big parties. The amount of production that goes into them now is just insane. There is no doubt the 90s has made its comeback in Melbourne, but secret public raves remain a turbulent topic with fears the events will lead to more drug taking and overdoses among young Melbournians. And so, although Melbourne's rave culture has made somewhat of a comeback, whether it's a good thing and whether it will last is yet to be found out. But for those attending, they seem to be enjoying the return of what was arguably the favourite subculture to come out of the 90s. Next up, Anthony tells us all about the recent controversy over an NBA player waving his gun on Instagram Live. You know, I put myself in that situation and, you know, I still, you know, take responsibility for that. Um, and I also put, you know, my team, you know, in a tough position, you know, with me not being able to, you know, be out there on the floor uh, for, you know, decisions I made. This is an audio clip from an interview that ESPN published two months ago where NBA superstar Jai Moran apologised for flashing a gun in a strip club in Colorado. 
This is what ex-NFL player Shannon Sharp said on his show, Undisputed. Skip, I think a lot of people say I wanted me to come out here today and say I'm surprised, I'm shocked, I'm disappointed in John's behavior. And I'm not. I said before, the best apologists change behavior. And when he was going through all this diatribe about what he learned about being away from the game, Skip, and how important it was to him, I say, I see better than I hear. I heard everything John said. And I say, now moving forward, I'm going to see if the behavior meets what he said. And clear, right on. And so at this point in time, Skip, where I am, I'm not even upset at John. Morant's track record regarding his behavior does not end with these two gun incidents. Rather, it is quite extensive and is definitely something Morant should be concerned about. Here is a short timeline of Morant's controversies. On the 22nd of July of 2022, Morant allegedly threatened a security guard and a customer service worker. On the 29th of January of 2023, Morant allegedly shined red lasers at the Indiana Pacers staff. On the 13th of March of 2023, Morant was suspended for flashing a gun on his Instagram live. And lastly, on the 14th of May of 2023, Morant flashed his gun on Instagram Live for the second time. Ex-NBA player JJ Redick has been criticised for defending Morant, suggesting that he has not broken any laws. From that point of view, I guess I can see where he's coming from. Why should a person be subjected to punishment if they haven't broken the law? But after listening to what Kenny Smith had to say about this in the pre-game show prior to the Celtics and Heat game, I can see how the criticism is justified. Kenny suggests that Moran is breaking the morality clause that is within NDA contracts. Here's what he had to say. What did he do? He flashed a gun. Some people have been saying that, and other people are saying, hey, this guy is flashing a gun in that serious offense. The NBA has a morality clause that in everyone's contract, let's start there, that expresses about violence, racism, all types of different things. With this in mind, let's hope Jar decides to change his behavior, not just for his sake, but for his families, his friends, and his supporters. The Tote has been a live music institution in Melbourne's inner north for decades. But when news of its sale broke and support surged behind a crowdfunding campaign to keep it out of the hands of developers, an unexpected bump in the road caused a powerful community reaction. Pete Whelan with more. The following segment contains strong language. Discretion is advised. Uncle Giza stepped off the stage at the Tote on March 6 after playing only one song, but their message was loud and clear. The Tote's owners, John Perring and Sam Krupe, had listed the Tote for sale, attaching a price tag in the neighbourhood of $6 million for the iconic live music venue in Collingwood. Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar owners Shane Hilton and Leanne Chance, eager to keep the Tote as a live music venue and to prevent its sale to developers, put up $3 million of their own money and set up a crowdfunding campaign to raise the other half. The night of Uncle Geezer's show, 
the crowdfunding campaign against all the odds had hit its goal. Almost immediately, a long post appeared on the Toad's Instagram page. At first, it appeared to congratulate the community on its efforts. The sentiment seemed amiable enough at first glance, but after a few pleasantries, it cut to the chase. Six million dollars wasn't enough. The Tote's owners wanted more. The goalposts had moved, and a wounded community seethed in the comment section. You guys are about to get transported back to medieval times with the mob that's coming after you, wrote one commenter. It's almost like you want to get headbutted upon entry to every bar in Melbourne forever, wrote another. Soon, the vitriol had spread to other platforms. TikToker Purple Pingers, who runs the popular Shit Rentals of Melbourne account, captured the public sentiment rather succinctly. Hello, this is my impression on what's been happening with the tote recently. Oh look, it's been a tough few years of not paying my employees any superannuation and also saying that musicians shouldn't get a minimum rate for any gig, so uh, I think I might just sell my venue. Look, that was tough, but we finally raised $3 million in crowdsourcing and we're going to put in the other $3 million uh, to save the tote. Here you go. Oh, you actually did it. Uh, that's great because what I'm going to do is actually not sell it to you because all this attention you've raised, I think I could probably get some more money from a developer. Oh, that's a bit fucked. I guess it'd be a shame if some people were mean to you in Instagram comment. Asia Taylor contributed to the crowdfunding campaign. As a band booker, photographer, music podcast host and part owner of Luli Tavern, a live music venue, Melbourne's music scene is her life in a very real sense and the tote is one of that scene's key institutions. The public outcry and backlash of that that post was so amazing and like showed, there were so many people, like no one that commented wasn't, yeah, just so passionate. And the names of the people commenting, like Jane Gazzo commented and like the, you know, 1-800-Lasagna, there was other business owners looking at this thinking, what are you doing? You're, you know, this is, this is social suicide. The force of the public response goes a long way in showing just what the tote has meant to Melbourne's live music community. Famed for its sticky floors and rock and roll, anything goes atmosphere, for years the venue had stood on the corner of Wellington and Johnston Streets, covered in the carefully scrolled lineups of its upcoming shows. Like thousands of others in the now deleted comments on the post, Asia was dismayed by the news, nostalgic for a place that had started to feel like home. Being inside the building, you can see and feel the, the, the memories and the good times that have been had by just looking at the posters on the wall and the sticky floors and everything else. Um, but it, I'd heard so much about it before I went and had heard that it's like this institution and that everyone's had a go and everyone that's someone has played here and I saw some amazing bands that first year of going to the tote like the Murlocs and um, drunk mums and people who just were rowdy and there was a lot of crowd surfing and good times pretty much anyone I know that is in the Melbourne music scene I met at the tote. When Asia found out the venue needed saving she was eager to help and she wasn't the only one. The Last Chance owner's crowdfunding campaign on Possible gathered steam quickly and would go on to set the record for the highest goal ever reached on the platform. As part of the public campaign, 
Hilton promised to get the name of each and every contributor tattooed on his body, and The Last Chance hosted all-night live streams featuring dozens of local artists contributing live performances, with dozens more like Georgia Mack of Camp Cope sending their encouragement from afar. And it's such a great place for young bands to play and come up, and it's just iconic. Please help donate, share, help Shane and Leanne from The Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar. Save the tote once and for all. As of this recording, negotiations are ongoing and The Last Chance owners have promised that if a deal is struck, contributions to the crowdfunding campaign will be placed in a public trust to ensure that the tote remains a live venue forever. In the event the deal falls through, they say contributors will be refunded in full. Two days after the Totes post, Hilton told Broadsheet, The journey is still continuing. The campaign ending didn't mean it would automatically sell, but we're confident we'll get the purchase. He is hoping that the saga of the Tote is far from over. Pete Whelan, Undercover. While the future of the Tote remains uncertain, Melbourne's bar scene remains as vital as ever. Reporter Caroline Colleen has more on Melbourne's first women's-only bar. Beans Bar is Melbourne's first lesbian-dedicated social venue and is set to open its doors on the 26th of May in the heart of Fitzroy. Owner and founder is Fitzroy local Rebecca Pressing, a social media influencer who uses her platform to advocate for queer inclusivity and mental health awareness. She gained her platform after appearing on Australia's Bachelorette in 2022, which was the first season to cast an openly bisexual woman as the lead. The birth of Beans Bar all began on TikTok after another influencer, Samantha Andrew, posted this video. Where are the lesbian clubs in Melbourne? Where are the clubs for people that are non-cis gay men? Cis gay men, go off, love you, rain on me, tsunami, hands up to the sky indeed. However, I want to get filthy on a dance floor with trans, non-binary, lesbians, etc. The video, which now has over 100,000 views, was responded to in another TikTok by Pressing. So for those that know me, you already know I'm a get shit done kind of girl. And all I'm saying is, if the demand is there, I will make this my personal pet project and I will make a lesbian bar in Melbourne happen. Pressing posted this to her platform of 18,000 TikTok followers and 11,000 Instagram followers, an audience of predominantly queer women. It received thousands of likes and hundreds of comments, most of which came from queer women in Melbourne, excited about the proposal. Pressing kept her word and the opening of Beans Bar was underway within just a few months. She had secured a venue and found an investor. Becca, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. To start off, can I just ask what you're hoping for, what kind of atmosphere you're expecting um, at Beans Bar? Like, honestly, I'm just hoping that people feel safe and comfortable and that they can, like, I think a big thing in the queer community is a lack of connection on a friendship level. So like a lot of people will come out as queer, but they don't have any queer friends. And so they sort of get stuck in this, like, how do I date someone if I don't have any queer friends? For some people, it's really hard to make those connections. And so I want to have a place where I can bring those people together, where they can meet each other and all that kind of stuff. And just 
basically become better connected with themselves and also feel like they have a space where they can comfortably be themselves. I can see it will be open to all individuals, regardless of sexuality and however they identify. Would you, but would you prefer it to be a particular concentrated demographic um, of mostly LGP, LGBTIQ female identifying or non-binary people, or is it just the more the merrier? It's a, it's a really fine line because I, I don't want to ever make anyone feel unwelcome, but I do also want to make sure that the space is catering for the community that it was made for. So are cis men welcome? Absolutely. But I want those cis men to be aware that if we're full and there is a line out front and you are a cis man and you are on Smith Street where there is 50 other bars you could be going to, maybe that's what you should be doing. Another really cool thing that you're, the bar's doing is having a neurodivergent night. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Sundays is going to be called Spicy Sundays. Um, and basically there's going to be things at all times that help people that are neurodivergent. Um, things like the music not blasting to the point where you can not have a conversation and the lighting not being so intrusive and offensive that it's infuriating or that kind of stuff. We're going to have bubble poppers. And from first glance, it is a lesbian bar, but really it's much more than that. It's, it's yeah. really just a place that's incredibly inclusive for anyone, whether they're whatever, however they identify sexually or what gender they identify with, but also um, inclusive for people that might not typically be comfortable in a sort of, yeah. sort of going out setting. The Australia's Bachelorette was pivotal in providing representation for same-sex female couples in Australia. Are you ready to make history? Yeah. Let's do it. Facing a mansion full of men and women. This is how I want to fall in love. So, Beck, that season of The Bachelorette was monumental for representation of bisexual women. Were you happy with how it was done by the show? I thought they did, like, the best with what they could. Um, Obviously, like, the focus was Brooke, and I think there was, like, a pretty fair depiction of you know, like showing her dating women and showing her dating men. Did you develop any feelings or even get a crush on any of the other girls, any of the other contestants? <laughs> no, nah, no. No? That's something I've always wanted nah, I see those. It was always, it was always so, like we were, we were in there to meet her. And so it just wasn't something that you thought about when you were in the house. And as a bisexual woman, what was it like growing up without that, um, sort of representation or at least the same level of representation in Australian media? Because there was no representation on screen or anywhere of a bisexual person or a person who likes the same sex who's a woman who looks femme and presents as a feminine, straight-looking person, I was like, oh, everyone just thinks girls are hot and loves girls, obviously. This has been Caroline Colleen, RMIT, Melbourne. Thanks for listening, folks. That was Undercover, Episode 5. This episode was produced by Ruby Littler with assistance from executive producers Tito Ambio and Lisa DeVisi. We'd also like to thank the reporters for this episode, Pete Whelan, Ben Estelle and Caroline Colleen. And thank you, Jack. We'll see you next time. <laughs>